I'm Maria Bruce Peterson. I'm Johanna Kinnock. And this is The Five Podcast, where we invite exciting people to guide you through the big questions of today. Chants, toppling statues, signs and singing fill the streets worldwide in response to the death of George Floyd and hundreds of other African Americans at the hands of the American police. It feels like the old world order is burning to the ground, but what will replace it? Over the next week, The Five Podcasts will be releasing our mini-series, After the Protest, where we dive into some of the big questions raised by the current demonstrations with some of the leading experts and changemakers on the issue. With them, we'll imagine, with a little bit of hope, what happens after the protests. Hello and welcome back to The Five Podcast. This is our third and final episode in the After the Protest series. Uh, we've been around a few topics, allyship and the history of the police, but this one is the big one where we take on American policing and what should happen with it in the future. Um, I guess we can all agree that something is broken in American policing, but the question is, what needs to change? Today, we speak to different people with different opinions on that question. Yeah, we spoke to Melvin Russell, who's a retired police officer, and he's been in the force for 40 years. And from his point of view, American policing has the, the potential to be this force of good, but it also needs some serious reform to get there. Yeah, well, I love serving. I, I absolutely love serving people um, and being that authentic peacemaker, not only one who um, restored peace, but maintained the peace and doing it the proper way. I love taking care of people of all colors, all classes, all races. I love going into a community that was disruptive or, or in chaos and being able to restore the peace and bring, I, listen, I love being a mediator, a facilitator, a social worker, um, a doctor, a nurse. Uh, 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 a priest. I love being all those things in one and just being a component of the community that was looked upon as someone that we can trust and it can bring us resolution in any time of trouble. Then there's the people on the other end of the spectrum who argue that the police are an inherently violent and broken institution and that the only way forward is to abolish it altogether. Here's lawyer, writer and abolitionist activist Derricka Purnell. I'm not interested in more polite interactions with police officers. I'm not interested in nicer, friendlier, you know, occupants of black neighborhoods. I'm not interested in that. After all these reforms that's been promised to us by Barack Obama's DOJ and by Donald Trump's DOJ, these reforms fail to keep us safe. They're tired of it. And so I think there's an opening that we have right now to imagine a world without police and to start resources alternatives that already exist. Like, can you imagine that? Going outside and then there's just no police officers. Walking around, would you feel safer or would you feel less safe? We'll get back to both Melvin Russell and Derek Purnell later. But first of all, we spoke to criminologist at John Jay University, David Kennedy, and he thinks that before we can make some of the big changes that Derricka 
or um, Melvin suggest, the police actually need to face up to all the damage that they've done in the past. So they need to look their past in the eye before they can move forward. Uh, for the last few years, he's been working for the National Network for Safe Communities. And one of the biggest tasks they've taken on is investigating what reconciliation would look like in America. So how America could begin to acknowledge its racist past in order to move forward. The, the historic reality of the, the way America has treated black communities is that they have been subjected to uh, white supremacy and, and violence and oppression and harm um, committed against them under color of law. Here's David talking about all the damage that the American police has done, both in the larger history of America, but also, of course, over the past two weeks. And um, that's literally beginning before there was a United States. I asked him the question, which is probably at the heart of all of these debates, uh, the question that people who are frustrated of hearing about how the police can improve are uh, provoking all of us to think about these days. But you just laid out this whole racist history of policing, and some people would look at that and say, hey, there's no coming back from that. That's why are we still working on on this uh, institution when it's when it's just so ingrained with racism? Uh, people people absolutely do say that. And and that that is a very very strong um, perspective and and position, um, and as as you know, the the position that the police should be abolished for for those and other reasons is is now a very strong perspective in the United States. Um, that same um, thinking could be applied to an awful lot and, and you know, arguably maybe all institutions in the United States. You know, there, there, there are no institutions in the United States that have not been formed in and informed by America's toxic history of racism and, and white supremacy. The, 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 nation, the nation was formed and has evolved from white supremacy in white supremacy um, in, in a history and a present structure of racism and systemic racism. So that there aren't any institutions for which that argument doesn't apply, uh, in, including the nation, right? The, the, the country itself is, is absolutely subject to that same argument. Um, and then there's a lot of thinking to do and, and work to do around whether we think those institutions um, can be can be reinvented, should be reinvented, should be fundamentally altered, should be replaced, um, and and that's the moment in, in which the country finds itself. Yeah, but the the police over the past few weeks, especially, have proven themselves to be uh, especially especially violent, and and your your work seems to uh, move towards an idea where there's some trust between people and police, but do you, do you really think that that can ever be regained after the last few weeks? Part of, part of my focus for decades and uh, a major focus of, of the National Network's work right now is 
what what in other contexts, mostly international contexts, has been framed reconciliation. After struggle ended apartheid in South Africa, the, the new South Africa went through a process of what it called truth-telling and reconciliation. And the, the fundamental recognition was that we, we have to live together. Neither, neither side in, in this is going away. We, we have to figure out how to live together. And in, in doing that, those, those who had done damage, awful, awful damage, um, acknowledged the harm that they had done. The process provided opportunities for those who had, had been harmed to, to tell their stories and speak to their experience. The, the process created a, a factual record that said these awful things happened and we will never pretend they didn't and they will never pretend that they didn't matter. So what you're talking about is essentially a mass apology. Re- reconciliation is much more than an apology. Apology is personal. Apology has to come from uh, an, an individual and perhaps an institutional recognition that is personally and institutionally authentic. You can't make somebody apologize and have it be authentic, uh, but you absolutely can insist on acknowledgement. So after after all these uh, protests have died down, for example, and, and you imagine this process of reconciliation, what does that look like? Every authentic reconciliation process has to be driven by the the peoples involved and none of them look exactly like any other but what they have in common is explicit formal acknowledgement by those who've done damage that they have done damage it they they involve explicit meaning of what that damage has been they involve ways and opportunities for those who have been harmed to tell their stories, to speak for themselves, and for those who have done the harm to hear that and to listen. One, one of the things that uh, people who facilitate reconciliation say is harmed peoples are never listened to. And even those who have done harm and start to get it tend to sweep in and say, right, I get it. Uh, we've, we've done terrible things. Here's what I'm going to do about it. And that's not listening. And crucially, because this is not about making people feel better, it's creating links between that work and linking that to repair to how things will happen going forward so that further damage is not done and the, the works of power and, and the state are carried out in, in relationship with the public so that that work is, is legitimate and is, is driven collectively. I was just wondering, when it comes to this reconciliation question, whether it can be a big enough operation unless it comes all the way up from, you know, the president who doesn't seem to be someone that's, that's up for going into that dialogue. 
if it's just at a local level, is that reconciliation going to be enough? So if, if, if the question is, you know, will anything we're talking about be enough? The answer is no. We, we, we are talking about some of the most fundamental issues of hundreds of years of, of, of systemic racism and racial harm. There isn't anything that, that anybody can do that's enough. So, right, so let's not pretend otherwise. No, but I'm just thinking in terms of South Africa, it was a very state-concentrated effort to really look the things in the eye, and it was a really holistic societal project. And I'm just, you know, wondering whether that's a, whether that's feasible. That, that's that's right. And um, I, I I await the day that that my country has the courage to do what other countries have done and say truthfully what it has done and what it is and and do what it ought to do to step up to that. Um, unfortunately, I'm not holding my breath about that. There's something so interesting about the idea of just lying flat and saying, look, we've done really horrible things. We're so sorry. And we're going to be truthful about that and have an honest conversation about that. And there was this really interesting interview with the mayor of Minneapolis on The Daily, where he sort of embodies some of that earnestness. And um, we'll put a link to to that interview in the description. Yeah, he was super duper humble about how badly the Minneapolis Police Department has acted in the past and really just faced up to that and looked it in the eye uh, and is keen to to change it up now. So I think that that's some of what Kennedy was talking about. But then the question is what concretely happens with the force uh, after that? And next up we have a so-called police reformer, Melvin Russell. Um, police reform has been a mainstream discussion in the States for years, but these days it's more popular than ever. Al Jazeera reports that a big majority of Americans are in favor of reforming the police for the first time. Yeah, it's... it's uh... So much is happening. And, and of course, there's a lot of different ways to go about police reform. And Russell, Melvin Russell, he's all about community policing, which means that the officers are going to be much more present in the communities they're policing. And because he's been an officer for 40 years, he says he's seen a lot of policing, both good and bad. Um, wouldn't you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, so um, I'm an American. My name is Melvin Russell. I am a former police officer with the Baltimore Police Department. Um, I've been with that agency for just under 40 years. Wow. And I was forced into retirement um, last June the 1st. So I just had a year anniversary for my retirement. Love my work, miss my work, but yeah, so that's who I am. Yeah, so on this podcast, we are uh, talking to a bunch of different people who have different visions for what policing should look like in America in the future. So we ask everybody to just, first of all, briefly lay out what the future of policing would look like to them. So one of the things you should know, Joanna, is that I have fought for reform um, as I actually saw policing in America start to crumble decades ago. 
but I really started to notice it maybe about a dozen plus years ago. I literally, because I had such a long tenure, I entered into law enforcement career, a law enforcement career, at a time when community policing was the order of the day, no matter what capacity that you worked in within that agency. People were practicing, or not practicing, but conducting themselves in a police-oriented way, community way, across the country. Something terrible happened to American policing probably in the 90s when a city called New York City um, found what they believe was a formula called zero tolerance to fight crime. And it really worked well for them during that era. Unfortunately, like many police departments, there are 18,000 of them in the United States, representing 800,000 police officers. Unfortunately, a lot of those 18,000 police departments, including Baltimore City, which I was a part of, it is the eighth largest police department in the country of the United States, went and took a big bite of those what they thought were best practices and brought them to Baltimore City. Baltimore City is nothing like New York City, and it was a huge failure. We ended up arresting one out of every six residents at the time, and whatever trust that we had still maintained um, and probably was building on absolutely crumbled after that. And relationships between policing or police department and the community became very, very uh, strained, if you will. So that was at the moment, in your opinion, where policing became dysfunctional and racist and all of these other things that we're hearing about the American police force now. I think policing has always been racist. There's always been systematic racism in policing in America. That has never stopped from the time of slavery. It's always been that. But to see it so blatant and overt right now, I think it made it started making its way through zero tolerance. And I think it really escalated because of the leadership, um, the president that we have of the United States of America, who has really embraced um, a type of culture that is not um, conducive to um, community policing or equality of policing for all people. It doesn't really, his, his leadership doesn't talk about or support social justice, but rather almost initiates and enhances social injustice. So I think over the last few years, that's why you've seen a heightened in the way um, policing has been very, very open and, and just late. And what, what drew you to policing in the first place? What happened was, um, as I was doing odd jobs of footmen, an officer who worked walked a foot beat came into a little sub shop, uh, fast food restaurant where we flipped burgers, made pizzas, and delivered them. Where I was working, and he just looked at me after several several stops coming in and said, "Melvin, what are you going to do with the rest of your life?" And it was a profound question for me because I didn't know. He's the one that suggested I go down to Baltimore City Police Department to try out to become a police to apply to become a police cadet, which I did, and the rest is history. Yeah, and then you and then you fell in love with it, right? Like, what is it about policing that that made you stay for forty years? <laughs> yeah, well, I love serving. I, I absolutely love serving people, um, and being that authentic peacemaker—not only one who um, restored peace, but maintained the peace and doing it the proper way. I love taking care of people of all colors, all classes, all races. I love going into a community that was disrupted. Or, or in chaos and being able to restore the peace and bring, I, listen, I love being a mediator, a facilitator, a social worker, um, 
a doctor, a nurse, a, a, a priest. I love being all those things in one and just being a component of the community that was looked upon as someone that we can trust and it can bring us resolution in any time of trouble. I absolutely love doing that. And I really love going into communities when it was very peaceful and just being part of those communities. And so it was nothing to see me going into what we call in America cookouts, barbecues. I just walk in, walking through the community and say, hey, give me a hot dog, give me a hamburger, can I get a soda? So our radios were confined into the car. They were attached to the car. So when you walked away from your car for blocks and blocks, and if you got into a scuffle or into a situation, um, you couldn't run back and say, wait a minute, you're getting the best of me. Let me run back to my patrol car, call for backup, and then I promise you I'll come back and lay on the ground. You keep on pounding on me. You couldn't do that. Right. But what you could do is depend on the community that ran outside with broom handles and, and straps and, and just their bare hands and pulled bad guys off of me, held them down or told me, Melvin, you got them. You don't have to do any more. Um, so a lot of my backup and my partners were the community members. And I really miss those days. So Melvin stopped patrolling in 1987 to be a narcotics officer, which he was for 20 years. And when he returned to being uh, an officer on the ground in 2007, he was shocked to see how the old forms of policing had been eroded. So again, when I reemerged in 2007, just the mere fact of pulling up on a corner and now back in uniform after not wearing one for 20 years and seeing teenagers just by the sight of me yelling to the top of their lungs how they hate the police using explicit language to make sure I heard that. That was not the norm 20 years previous. There was great respect for police. Police officers, in, at least in Baltimore City, were considered officer friendlies. Um, but now to see this type of interaction, which was very hostile and distrusting, there was a great disdain in the voice of these young people. And I would find that was the culture, the new culture of the day. It was disheartening. So I didn't really discover it until 2007. And at that point, that's when I started to really soul search and really investigate what happened. Because back in the 80s, before I went into narcotics, community members loved us. Young people loved us. The elders, churches were involved. Everybody was involved in community policing. So what came from that soul searching? Yeah, so they, it seemed like policing has shifted from being um, partners with the community to being occupied, and I absolutely hated it. And so... The first thing I did, I only had control over about 20, 30 cops. Um, I ran a shift of patrol officers, and I recognized they were the worst shift. It was a midnight shift. We were permanent midnight. It was the wor worst producing. I'm not talking about quota, but just producing a good quality of life for the residents that we were responsible for protecting and serving. It was the worst in the city. And I took them back because they were very young. There was not too many older police officers. There was one or two. I took them back to an era of my policing style. And if they were going to work for me, they had to incorporate the mindset and the tactics that I grew up with. And so within about five months, that shift became the number one producing month, producing shift as far as, yes, arrest, but also building community trust. And what did you teach them? What did you like? What is an example of something that you passed on to them? So one of the great things that I realized police had stopped doing was listening to um, community members. So when they would answer calls, um, they were quick to assess, you know, they might listen to a couple of words from a community and then they would leap into action the best way to, to uh, relieve or to de-escalate that situation. 
Um, and oftentimes they became part of the problem by yelling with individuals that were already yelling and going back and forth. Um, I taught them, number one, we have to learn to listen. You're not listening to the problems. And if you don't have all the facts, you can't bring resolution to the situation. And so those are some of the things that we did. Um, other things was just to so show yourself friendly, right? Don't just show up in the communities at a time that they're in distress. Can you not go into the community? I need you to go into the community when it seems as though all is well and go through and say hello. Get out of your car. When you're riding through a community, get away from this stupid practice that I'm now seeing where everybody's driving through the community at 20, 30 miles an hour instead of just cruising through at 5, 10 miles an hour, gaining eye contact with the community members, saying hello, and make sure your windows are rolled down, man. I don't care how hot it is. You're not paying for the gas. Blast your AC if you have to. I don't care how cold it is. You're not paying for the gas. Blast your heat in the winter if you have to, but keep the freaking windows down. Don't look like you're separate from the community. Look like you're part of the community. But I'm thinking in terms of the the functions that you're describing there, creating trust, helping people out, uh, being in touch with the community, do the people that fulfill those functions need to carry guns? Like, couldn't that be social workers doing that work instead? No, 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 no. Unfortunately, we're not like a lot of countries. Um, gun violence is huge in America. I, I would hope that go away, but I don't see it going away, especially anytime soon, unless you banish all guns. And let's just face it, the money and the greed within firearms and the manufacturing and selling of firearms is far exceeding anybody's. It, it is so corrupt that you're going to always have guns on the street of America, right? And so you can't have a small population who absolutely are bent on doing crime and using handguns to further enhance their criminal enterprises. And then you have law enforcement that's not equipped. That's not going to work. It'd be different if it was like other countries that don't have firearms everywhere, just filtering the street. That's not America, right? You can't have the bad guys who are already armed greater than the police, and then you have a police with no firearms. That, that's, that's a formula for failure right there. And so, no, police have to have guns, but they have to be trained in a certain way um, to know how to use use of force. So training officers differently is obviously a huge part of how Melvin sees the force changing from within in the future. But there are also other things that can be done to make the police feel more bound and connected to the community. A lot of people don't look at this, but I think leadership is so vital and relational equity. Those two go hand in hand. I was taught a long time ago about relational equity. The other thing where policing became broken in America, in my humble opinion, over the last couple of decades, we've gotten to this practice of doing national searches for top cops. National searches. So I can take and I can take a top cop from one part and tell them come down into another part where it's totally different culture and say, now I need you to be the top cop here because you were so successful over there. But the dynamics are different. The relationships aren't there, right? You're not going to be successful. Even this is going to sound weird. If you don't even know who the bad guys are and have a relationship with them, there should always believe be a working relationship between the police and a criminal element. That sounds weird. But when we say community policing, you have to include the gang members and criminals. If you ever watch really good cop shows, and there's a bunch of them out there, the good cops, they know who the criminals are. 
how do you effectively police a city made up of neighborhoods and community when your police aren't from those neighborhoods and communities? Because in Baltimore City, I don't know what the statistics are across the country, in Baltimore City, 80, probably 80 plus percent of our police officers now are from other cities and countries. How do you police a city when you ain't from there? It is a disaster and we have to get back. So who can make sure that the police know their community and what their community needs? According to Melvin, it's the people themselves. You know, I would love, I would love police chiefs across the country to be in an elected position. Let the people elect one of their own to lead their local police force. So that, you know what that means? That means if you ever aspire, if you ever aspire to be a police chief, a, a commissioner, you got to have a good relationship with that community. You got to be known one who has integrity and who is a great server of the people. Elect your top cop. The people know who they want. The people know what type of policing they want. So if the people vote and say, you know what, this is one of us. We've seen their style. We like the way they police. I think the entire police department would take a total reformation, a change, and become different if we had them as a top cop. Put him, put her in place. Shouldn't you as, don't you remember your officer friendly? Don't you remember the cop that really helped you and rose through the ranks? Don't you remember them? How come you're not in a position to pick them to run the city that you so love? You already know their character. You know the contents of their heart. It, aren't those the type of police officers you want to run your police department? Yeah, so they should be including that. Melvin Russell is proposing some pretty major, pretty thorough changes to policing. But then there's also this other conversation going on right now about abolishing the police altogether. Um, this idea that, that once seemed so, so radical this last month, it's made it into major mainstream news outlets. Yeah, and these are really people that are saying, hey, look, these conversations that we're having about just changing the police, they're not enough. Reform is not enough. What we need is to completely rethink how we do criminal justice and abolish the police entirely. Derricka Purnell is a lawyer, activist and writer, and she's been vocal about abolition of the police since 2017. One thing I learned, you know, in law school is just that police have enormous amounts of power. And even though convictions of police officers were increasing for killings, it didn't necessarily mean that the number of people being killed every year would decrease. So in the United States, there are about 18,000 law enforcement agencies. There's one million police officers, and they kill about 1,000 people every year. And so if we wanted to stop the number of killings, we couldn't do that by just sending police officers to prison, which is what it's really hard to do. But even if we reduce the killings, police are an occupying force in so many American neighborhoods, right? And so police commit all sorts of individual acts of violence. They, there's excessive force, which is the number one complaint against police officers. There's sexual misconduct, which is the number two complaint against police. Um, and so I was pushed, you know, to really ask myself after reading and struggling with abolitionist scholarship, 
Like, what is it that I want? Do I want police to go to prison for killing black people? Or do I want the violence to stop? And the only way to stop violence between police and civilians is to reduce contact and stop contact between the two. And so ultimately, I came to the side of abolition. So you're saying policing is an inherently violent institution? Absolutely. There's no, there's, and for a long time, I remember uh, me and my partner, we would talk about police brutality, police brutality, but there's no police that's not brutal. Police presence is violent. Police presence is brutal. So there's, police um, are an inherently violent institution that come out of slave patrols in the United States. They were created to suppress Black rebellion to suppress Black resistance, to break up labor organizing. And over time, their role has shifted to be. And so what happens is that when you have inequality, you have to figure out how to manage inequality. So the people who are being exploited just don't go and take what they deserve from the people who have it. And so police are the primary managers of inequality. They're sent to go to stop people from taking, you know, what other people have. And so if we want a more equal society, that's what we should create. We shouldn't just continue to hire managers, racist managers of inequality. So what does, what does that look like? What does a world without police look like to you? Well, a world without police is a world with significantly, you know, reduced inequality. It's, that's one major part of it. It's a society that's less racist, less classist, less homophobic. It's an eradication of the reasons why people think they... And so uh, in the United States, in the prison reform conversation, lots of people like to point to other countries and say, oh, look, their prisons are so great. You know, look look how great these prisons are. Frankly, it's annoying because we go to prisons in European countries, the people who are there are usually immigrants or from North Africa, but that's another conversation. But they're always just like, oh, look, 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 it's so great, right? But if you look at a lot of the European socialist countries, they, there's way less inequality. And so the United States has to figure out how to become a more egalitarian society where if we want to stop people from harming people on the basis of race, class, gender, sexual orientation, and disability, we have to do the work to protect those categories, to resource people who occupy those demographics, to make sure that we are creating a society that isn't steeped in rape culture, right? We have to make sure that if if we care about gender-based violence, that doesn't mean we have more police officers. It means we ask, okay, why are people remaining in relationships where there's violence? And a lot of times that's traceable to rape culture. It's traceable to, oh, I can't leave because I won't have some place to live or my kids won't be safe. You know, so it's how do we start getting to the root causes of harm and violence and not simply putting all of our hopes, because police can't solve the problem. So that world is already in the making. Like, we know it exists, and we see in communities that have much more resources that there's less policing there to fix problems, to address problems. There's counselors, there's more hospitals, you know, there's more school activities, quality education options. Housing is not an issue. There's economic security. Right. So you're not calling the police over fights over the bills because you don't have to worry about the bills being paid for. Right. The bills are getting paid. So how do we make sure that people have at least their basic needs met and much more beyond that? And that requires it. It just requires an invitation to think about how we want to build that world together. So it's about taking money out of the police and putting it elsewhere. Well, we need much more than that. That's just a start. So it, it's not a one to one trade off. It's interesting how. The defund the police conversation has 
occupies this quasi space between reform and abolition. But I see defunding, I see the potential of defunding the police as being closer to the abolish police conversations and the reform conversation. The reform, to reform something means to improve it. So we want to reform police. It means how do we improve police as managers of inequality? So George Floyd was killed. He was murdered, you know, on camera. Um, you know, a, an officer, a police, a cop put his knee into George Floyd's back. George Floyd was supposedly arrested because a store owner called He's and alleged that Mr. Floyd tried to use a counterfeit $20 bill. So to reform the police means that, you know, the police officer who puts his knees to George Floyd's back would have had a more polite interaction. But it doesn't get to the economic harm that Mr. Floyd was already experiencing. Like, even if he actually did try to use a counterfeit $20 bill, like, why are people, you know, living in an economy where they're surviving on counterfeit $20 bills? So I'm not interested in more polite interactions with police officers. I'm not interested in nicer, friendlier, you know, occupants of Black neighborhoods. I'm not interested in that. You know, I'm not interested in what they try to sell us as community policing. Because at the end of the day, you don't need nice police to, to, like, lock you up. You need to get to the, the problem. And police cannot solve the problem. As I wrote for the New York Times, they are the problem. So in this in this vision where there's no police, how are, for example, violent criminals prosecuted? How are they policed if there's no police? Well, I think it depends on how we define violent criminals, right? So in the United States, when people ask me this question, it's usually when they say violent criminals, they're talking about people who kill people and people who, you know, sexually assault people and maybe people who do housebreaking. So here's the thing. The overwhelming majority of people who break in into houses do it because of economic desperation. That's why there are fewer break-ins in, in countries where they're more egalitarian. And so if we want to reduce break-ins, we want to reduce that kind of harm, we have to undermine the reasons why people are so economically desperate to go into someone else's house. And the people who suffer the majority of home break-ins are people who have incomes of less than $7,500 a year. I know that the, the television always shows, you know, home burglaries as, you know, these crooks and like these rich people live in this house and the burglar like breaks into the rich person's house and steals all the, the expensive art. But that's not, that's not the reality for actual break-ins. There's unfortunately people who live in economically dire circumstances who are harming each other because they need resources. So if we care about punishing them, then we should keep our society. If we care about, you know, making us more safe, then we need to eliminate economic desperation. The same thing with murder and killing. So if someone kills someone, we have to ask why. Why do people kill people? And people kill people for so many different reasons. Some people kill people because they're racist. Some people kill um, people because they're homophobic. Some people kill people because of toxic masculinity. Some people kill people because of self-defense. So we have to find out the root causes of the harm and then begin to address it. And we want to, you know, keep putting people in prison after someone's already dead, then we could keep our current society. We want to save trans black women. We want to save, you know, people who are gay, who experience homophobic violence. Then we have to start investing in public education. We have to start, you know, pouring in resources around, you know, trans affirmation, right? We have to 
create a society where trans people are not vulnerable in the first place. You know, the same thing with sexual assault. People commit sexual assault because of rape culture, because we've been conditioned that someone who says no is playing hard to get. So we have to re-socialize our kids. We have to re-socialize our parents, our lovers, our siblings, our employers even, around what consent is and around what desire is. And so again, if we care about putting people who sexually assault other people in prison, then we can keep our current society. If we want people to be safer, if we want people to be happy, if we want people to have good sex, then we should be abolitionists because that's what it's about, right? It's how do we create a society where people can thrive? Like, that's what we're working towards. And so uh, the the framing of the question also, it, it neglects that crime is a social construct. And so in the United States, it's criminal if I pour poison into your water and you drink it. It's, it's, that's considered a crime. But we know in the United States, there's governments all over the country, particularly in the South, but also in places like Newark, New Jersey, and Flint, Michigan, where city officials and state officials made concerted efforts to, to shift the water, to shift the water pipe. And so people who lived in Black, poor neighborhoods started getting poisoned water. There's no criminal activity there. There's no criminal charge. But in a world without police, how would the people who are poisoning the water in Flint be prosecuted? Well, they're not prosecuted today in a world with police. And that's my point. So the people who make decisions... But is that? But it sounds like it's a it's a very lo- long-term plan and it's a lot of uh, root causes that you're talking about. But I'm also just wondering, like, is there no place for prosecu- prosecution at all in the world that you're imagining? Well, I think it depends. So I think the first thing that I would say is I have ideas about what this society could and should look like, which is why I'm a part of an organization to build that society. And collectively, we get to imagine and we get to practice alternative responses to harm. And so for people, for example, who are doing work around domestic violence through an abolitionist lens, one thing they do is offer the people who experience the harm um, restorative justice and transformative justice opportunities to figure out, okay, is there anything about this relationship between you and the person who harmed you that that is worth protecting? And if they say yes, then the people who work in that area try to figure out how to get to a place where that harm is restored without the police. So this is not like a pre and post world of police and prisons and prosecution. It's not like everyone's going to go home today and tomorrow and just leave the world to chaos. That's not what we're asking. What we said is that there's already abolitionist practices right now that we need to invest in and amplify. And so it's not it's not like, what are we going to do once the police are all gone? We're already creating that world. Here's the thing, at least in the United States, most of the people who experience sexual assault do not call the police. They don't call the police because the police also commit sexual assault. They don't call the police because the police take their rape kids and they sit for years in a stockpile with other rape kids. They don't call the police because the police don't believe them. Or the police say you should deserve it. So that's the world we have today. And if that's the world that we deserve, I don't want this world. But we deserve so much more than that. And so concretely, there are people who are already organizing responses to harm without police. The question is, oh, do we have the imagination and the will to invest in those and to make them more readily accessible to people across this country? And I think we can and I think we should. People still associate the police with safety, though. And we've been speaking to a couple of reformers on this podcast who think that People will not feel safe unless there are police around. Yeah, of course people feel safe with police because if you're rich, police keep you safe. That's that's what police are for and that's precisely the problem. And so if you are afraid of 
people taking your stuff without police, then you should probably start rethinking, well, why is it that people have, have why, do, why do some people get to accumulate a lot of wealth and a lot of privilege and a lot of opportunity and others don't? So you feel safe without, relief, without police because of the inequality, which is why an abolitionist project is also anti-capitalist. Because it works against exploitation. It works against inequality. It works against global capitalism, right? It works against all these things that that um, create a society where a very, very privileged few get to live the life that they want while so many suffer, right? And so, of course, I'm sure those people won't be safe, which is why over time, we also have to abolish capitalism, right? It's a multi-faceted feminist project. Now, for people from the neighborhood where I grew up who probably feel, they don't feel safe with police and they don't feel safe without police. Like, that's the experience of my mother, right? And so the reason why Ms. Alexander writes this beautifully about prison, when you are used to not having anything because you've been exploited, because you've been oppressed, oppressed, and your only two options are prison or nothing, prison feels like justice. Prison feels like safety if your other option is nothing. And it's the same with police. If your only options feel like police or nothing, you're probably going to want police because nothing feels like it's not safe. And what abolitionists are saying, hey, what if there's all these other options between nothing and police? How do we give people other options? How do we resource the other options that already exist, like the Oakland Power Project that teaches people to, to not call 911, but instead to build small community-based networks to respond to all kinds of emergencies, right? So people are like, oh, I guess I didn't realize that there are alternatives that we can use right now. Right now, they're already being used that we can resource. I think that people be much more open to the projects of abolition. It's interesting that you say that there's absolutely no future where the police could, could play a healthier role. The, the purpose, the police was founded to suppress Black rebellion. A lot of the tools and policies that are currently in police departments come out of how they've been trained since the 1700s, 1600s even, to, to patrol and to, and to stop Black resistance. Like, that's the purpose, that's their function, is why they exist. So the idea that we can just rebrand police is like, we understand that there's such a disassociation with what Nazis were like, charge with doing that like it's it's repulsive like no one would say that and like no one would ever say that oh there's no so there's nothing that they can do and it's like do you know what nazis did do you know what they did and for whatever reason with police it's just like yeah but we can make community police and it's just like do you not know like how police participated in lynch mob how they cut the genitalia off of black people who swung from trees do you not know how they like slaughtered people who are indigenous and raped black women? That this wasn't just one or two officers, but entire departments, entire departments refused to arrest KKK members for terrorizing black communities because they were part of the KKK. And so it, it, it feels so insulting when people ask me, can we just rebrand them? As if that history is just something that does not matter. Do you think that society is finally ready? To, to embrace an abolitionist way of thinking? After 2014, police reform was the number one conversation in the United States. And people were excited to see the police be reformed. 
And then after all these reforms that's been promised to us by Barack Obama's DOJ and by Donald Trump's DOJ, these reforms fail to keep us safe. They're tired of it. And so I think there's an opening that we have right now to imagine a world without police and to start resources and alternatives that already exist. So an end note. On June 7th, the City Council of Minneapolis actually voted to disband the police. Because as Lisa Bender, the Minneapolis City Council president, said to The Guardian, our commitment is to end policing as we know it and to recreate systems of public safety that actually keeps us safe. And since nine out of 12 of City Council members voted for dismantling the police, it actually can't get vetoed by a higher office. Um, of course, they haven't settled on what will replace it, but it'll certainly be interesting to see how they not only envisage, but also implement a world without police. Yeah, maybe the world that Derica is imagining isn't as far away as we thought. been listening to the five podcast where we tackle some of the big questions of today the podcast is brought to you by five media a new global media platform that aims to change the conversation through quality journalism go to fivemedia.com for more five content and subscribe to the podcast to never miss an episode see you there bye bye